The final chapter in the Bible is the counterpoint to the events in the Bible's first chapter that we considered just a few weeks ago. In that first chapter of the Bible, we read of the way in which God's creation began. It was the beginning of time. It was the beginning of history. In spite of all that archaeologists have to say about there being prehistoric times, the first chapter of the Bible tells us that is the beginning of history. It was the beginning of gospel opportunity, especially in the aftermath of the fall. In the last chapter of the Bible, we encounter the last day of the age. A day will come when the creation will undergo a transformation. The transformation will be more than the restoration to the pristine condition in which the universe was when God made it. The transformation will be to a new heaven and a new earth. What I have sometimes called in the past the third world. You see the location that God is preparing for his people as their everlasting home is in this spot in the universe. Because this world will pass away and a new heaven and a new earth will take its place. Our conceptions of heaven find their limitations in our inability to conceive of this world as anything other than what we know it to be. But the witness of the Holy Scriptures is that in the language of the Apostle Peter, there will be new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Think of that new earth in which will dwell righteousness. The implication of Peter's statement is that wickedness and ungodliness find no place in that new earth. No, there will be no pride months or pride parades in that new earth. In the passage before us this evening, we encounter the marks of the everlasting estate of the redeemed people. Now what we do not find is any description of sitting down to converse with Martin Luther or with anyone else for several hundred years to discuss theology. We don't find that. We do not find any reference to husbands and wives setting up housekeeping. Jesus told us that in the resurrection, husbands and wives will be like the angels of God. The correspondence between life as we know it in the second world, that is this world, and life in the new earth, 
the third world appears limited. If you want to know the essence of heaven, you have to grasp the passage that we have read this evening. It is the last chapter of the Bible. And it is an exposition of the experience of the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth. This chapter underscores for us the reality that what you are in time, you will be in eternity. The words of verse 11 emphasize that truth. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is which is filthy, let him be filthy still. But then the other half of the verse, he that is righteous, he that is justified, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. So these words emphasize that the population in the new earth does not increase or decrease. So there will be no need for a census bureau. You won't have to find out how many more people there are now than there were some time ago. There will be no deaths to report. And there will be no births to report. Those who are there, a multitude that no one can calculate, will always be there. And no one else will gain entrance to that place. It is a place without flaw. It's a place without darkness. It's a place of ideal temperature. That is, we shall not need air conditioning or anything of that nature. It is a place of perfect harmony among all its inhabitants. But as wonderful as those characteristics are, as much as they excite our imagination, they are not the things that make heaven the place of absolute bliss and happiness. That which makes the new earth the place of complete blessing is what we read here in this chapter, that the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. That which makes the new earth the place of complete blessing is that the Lord God himself furnishes the light for it. Now in this world, we tend to focus our attention on what I call the purveyors of perversion. And they are all about us. And it seems that they have the ascendancy. But in heaven, the focus of our attention will be on God. It will be on the glory of God, especially in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That face will illuminate the activities of the redeemed and it will deny entrance to all who refused Christ's redemption. They will have their lot everlastingly with the unbelievers in the place of doomed souls. Genesis 1 presents to us beginnings as we considered it 
Revelation 22 presents to us endings. Endings. And I want to speak for a few moments on that theme this evening. Holy Scripture has a unifying message. That message is that there is salvation only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is a unified whole. That means there is not one God in the Old Testament and another God in the New Testament. There is not a gospel in the Old Testament and another gospel in the New Testament. There is a single unified message in the Bible that affects the destiny of all of the people of God, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. There is not then one people of God in the Old Testament and another people of God in the New Testament. Do you aspire to the everlasting estate that we find in this chapter? Do you want to be where the throne of God and of the Lamb are? Do you want to avoid the company of those of whom we read who are without? The dogs, the sorcerers, the whoremongers, the murderers, the idolaters, the lovers of lies? If you want to avoid their company and you want to be with those who are in the Lamb's presence, then you will want to be in the new earth. There are people who profess to be believers, but who cozy up to the world's perverted popular culture with its sensuality, its dancing, and its debauched music. What God's people should desire is the fellowship of the people who have trusted in Christ and who have devoted themselves to following him. The message of this chapter is that Christ is coming at the appointed time without any delay. The day of Christ's coming has not yet arrived. But the Bible says your time is always ready. When there is a new heaven and a new earth, that which makes the difference between whether you are in the new earth or without is your relationship to the Lamb. So I want us this evening to ponder some of the endings that this chapter signifies. So let us think first of all of time. The ending of time. When the end comes, history will be over. And time shall be no more. Turn back a few pages in Revelation to chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 5. 
And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, this is a vision of Christ, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein, there should be time no longer. Time will end. Think of the implications. Calendars will cease. There will be no need for them. Clockmakers and those who repair clocks, who are called horologists, they'll be out of business. That which conditions every aspect of our daily lives will be gone. Our service to Christ in the new heaven and the new earth will have no end because time will be no more. Think of it. Worship will have no time limits. We shall not grow weary or sleepy in the activity of worship. The day will have no end. Or there shall be no night there. Life will have no end. Everything about our experience in this life is conditioned by the awareness that life will have an end. But language strains to express the truth of the end of time. John Newton felt the frustration in his hymn, Amazing Grace, when in the last stanza he wrote, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's hard for us to comprehend that truth because we live in time. So we feel the difficulty in comprehending and contemplating endlessness. We will always be creatures of the succession of moments. That is, we will never be infinite. We will never be eternal beings. But the new heaven and the new earth will be the place of the end of time. In that place where time will be gone. We read in this chapter, there is unrestricted access to the tree of life. And even here, in verse 2, we find the, the strain of language to express the reality of the end of time. The tree of life bears fruit, as we read here, endlessly. Every month, it bears fruit. And in that expression is the strain of contemplating the end of time. The service and the worship that the inhabitants of the new earth will render will have no end because of the end of time. So we read in verse 3 of the chapter, 
His servants shall serve Him. There won't be any schedules for that. This service will go on, and it will go on. This word serve here in verse 3 is the word for worship. The word we hear in the Latin word latria. And we find another reference to this word in Paul's epistle to the Philippians and chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. And there's that same word, which serve God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Here is worship. They will serve Him. That is, they will worship Him endlessly. There will always be that before them which draws from them the effusion of praise and all the hindrances to that praise will be gone. Here is the destiny of those who belong to the Lord. As we read here, they shall see His face. They will have the experience forever without end, that three of the apostles had for just a few moments on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let us turn back to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. And verse 1. And after six days Jesus taketh Peter James and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And we're not left in any doubt as to what that transfiguration was. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. There was for just a few moments, that shining forth, that effulgence of the glory of God. But we read in Revelation 22 that His servants will see that shining face and that His name will mark their foreheads. What's the message here? The service that we render now in worship prepares us for our vocation that will be forever. We find the command at the end of verse 9 that was given to John. He was going to bow before the angel, but the angel said, I am your fellow servant. Here is who you should worship in verse 9. Worship God. And then in verse 14, we find the statement that those who are blessed do the commandments of the one who is the Alpha and Omega. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life 
and may enter in through the gates into the city. I thought of those we have known who have left this world. They are serving Christ. They praise Him. They look on His face. They have no weariness in their service. They don't wonder when it will be over. The end of time has set them free. But for the people of the world, the end of time is the end of something else. It's the second ending that we consider gospel opportunity. It's the end of gospel opportunity. When the clocks stop and the calendars disappear, so will all opportunity to believe on Christ. The coming of the new heaven and new earth will not carry a second chance for people to repent and to believe. When Christ proclaims the end of time, as we read there in Revelation 10, he proclaims the end of gospel opportunity. And for the servants of Christ in this world, the end of time means that that is the end of all opportunity to proclaim the gospel witness. You have only the time that is yours now to give witness of the gospel. That will come to an end. But the more solemn ending is that which comes to those who refuse Christ and his salvation. That opportunity will end when the new heaven and new earth come, when, as Peter describes it, this world and all the works in it will be burned up. Paul wrote of the urgency of this situation for those who are unrepentant. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6. And verse 1, we then as workers together with him beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the day of gospel opportunity. This is the day for those who are unrepentant to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ. To despise that gospel opportunity now in the day of salvation is to risk losing it forever. Because there will be the end of that opportunity. The new heaven and new earth signal the end of the world in which we live. Think of it. All of its corruption. All of its violence. All of its perversion will vanish. When Jesus appears in flaming fire 
to take vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel. Those who have refused that gospel opportunity are visible in this passage. We find them in verse 15 as being outside the new earth without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. There will be nothing that will mar the new heaven and new earth without our dogs. There will be no politics in the new heaven and the new earth. Without are the heathen. Without are the unbelievers. They will have no right to the tree of life. There will be no court in which they can sue. They will die everlastingly. They will never have hope. They will never escape the despair of hell without our dogs. Without are the workers of iniquity. There may be those among them who pretend to have some attachment to the people of God, but they are liars. They are lovers of this evil world. And they seek to drag others down to destruction with them. They are thorns in the sides of the people of God. They love lies and they make lies continually. Many of these people are in journalism. They love lies and they make lies continually. But the amazing thing is that the people of the new heaven and the new earth will never be aware of them. The unbelievers will be without. They will be unable to bring their corruption into the midst of the Lord's people. Here is one of the greatest aspects to me of the new earth. And what makes the difference? It is what you believe about Christ. So there is a call now to come to Christ. There is the gospel opportunity now to embrace Christ. But if you will not, then the words of verse 11 will be pronounced against you. It will be wonderful to have deliverance from everything that is wicked. And for the people of God, there is another blessed ending. That's the third thing that we consider in this passage. The, the trials of God's people. There will be an ending to the trials of God's people. In the previous chapter, chapter 21 in verse 4, we find these words are to the point, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither
crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Why? For the former things are passed away. No more tears. No more pain. No more anguish. No more anxiety. And we read of these people that they shall reign forever and ever. Mortality will end. And nothing will hinder any longer their access to the word of God. Because even in the new heaven and the new earth, as we read in this chapter, the word of the king goes forth. The word of the king is necessary. And even there, the word of the king provides all that his subjects need. Notice the aspects of the king's proclamation. We find them in verse 6. These sayings are faithful and true. The sayings of the king are faithful and true. That's not just true in the new heaven and the new earth. It is true now. It is true in the scriptures that we have before us. His sayings call for our belief and our obedience and our submission. His sayings must not be diluted or erased. The end of trials for the inhabitants of the new heaven and the new earth means then unrestricted access to the word of the Lord. So let us always hear and do the sayings of the king's proclamation. Because last of all, we come to the real comfort in the passage. There is another ending in view. It is the fourth that we consider, and that is the expectation of the promise. We live now in expectation and anticipation that Christ is going to come. We are told to wait for God's Son from heaven. We are told to keep our eyes up, to lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. But there will come a day when Christ is going to appear. And he will come quickly. That expression, as I'm sure you noticed, occurs several times in the chapter. We find it in verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. We find it in verse 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. We find it in verse 20, Surely I come quickly. In verse 7, this promise is an exhortation that to keep the words of God. Because quickly, He's going to come. In verse 12, it's a reminder that his coming brings with it reward and judgment. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. In verse 12, it's a reminder that he comes without delay. Sometimes you hear people talk and it may be just a way of saying something but they're saying if the Lord delays his coming 
I can tell you tonight the Lord is not going to delay his coming. He's not delaying it now. It's not a biblical concept. Because the Lord is going to come and he said, I come quickly. We have a different way of interpreting what quickly means. But there is a day fixed when Christ will appear. And there will be no more waiting for God's Son from heaven. God's Son will appear from heaven. He will come without delay. He will come at the time God has appointed. And only the Father knows that time. Hear the cry then of John as we come toward the latter part of the chapter. Come. Come at the appointed time, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come without delay. So that the appointed time has not come is an indication that the endings of which we have spoken tonight have not happened. Time is still going on. Suffering is still going on. Gospel opportunity is still going on. But of course, for those who have died, or in exceedingly rare cases, have left the world without dying, for them, those endings have taken effect. So the invitation to all who are in the world is still open, as we read it in verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. The Spirit and the church say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. Take the water of life freely, but do it now. We plead for Christ to come now. And when he appears, and he's going to appear, we don't know when in our frame of time. We don't know when it will be. But when he appears, all expectations will cease. We will no longer be anticipating an event. We will see him. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. We know, John said in his first epistle, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We have no conception of it now, but we will on the day when expectation will cease. The last chapter sets before us the endings. As the first chapter of the Bible sets before us the beginnings, there will come a day when time and history will be over. And for those who know Christ, that day will usher in the endless day of service unto the Lamb, who, as we sang earlier, is all the glory in Emmanuel's land.